Good morning. Please remain standing as we read from God's holy word. We will be reading from chapter 33 of Exodus, verses 12, through chapter 34 in Exodus, verse 9. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles nearby to you, it is on page 73. Again, Exodus, chapter 33, starting with verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that are on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray once more. 
Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning heavy laden. If we were to describe our spiritual walk as a sailboat, uh, for some of us, we feel your spirit uh, filling our sails. Uh, For those of us who are having a little bit more difficult time, we feel as though we need to put out the oars and start to row. And some of us are adrift at sea. So we come to you in different places. Yet you say in your word that blessed is the man who delights in your word, uh, the one who meditates on it day and night. And he's like a tree planted by streams of water which bears its fruit in season. And we thank you for this promise. We thank you that in it we find that your word is delightful to our souls and that we're able to bear spiritual fruit when we think about it and as we hear it and as we study it. And so we ask this morning, as we sit under the teaching and preaching of your word, that your spirit would help me to be able to proclaim your truth clearly, accurately, and for all of us to be able to hear the truths that you have for us so that we would live our lives differently in light of it. And we thank you for hearing our prayers, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when my brother and I were growing up, we owned a Game Boy. Now, for those of you who hear those two words, Game Boy, you would know what I'm talking about. Uh, This was before the days of iPhone, iPad, Nintendo DS, Nintendo Switch, and all those devices. This was a black and white video game console that you could hold in your hands. Now, the Game Boy was quite expensive, so our family only owned one. This means my brother and I had to share the Game Boy. So whenever a new game came out, I would always call first dibs on the Game Boy. And I would begin playing this new game, and my brother would ask, when is it my turn? And then I would respond, whenever I get to a save point, because in those days you cannot save whenever you wanted. You had to get to a certain point in the game before you can actually save your game. And so I play, I would get to a save point, but my brother was not in the same room, so I just play a little bit further. And then my brother would come back and ask, is it my turn yet? And I would lie and say, well, I haven't got to a save point yet. And then he would go back to his room, and he'd wait a little bit longer, and then he would ask the same question. And before long, he would get the idea and actually see that I was trying to hog our Game Boy. And if you know boys, when they realize that there is some injustice, especially when your older brother is hogging the game council, it quickly becomes conflict. Conflict that becomes arguing, conflict that becomes yelling, and in some cases, it erupts into some fist-to-fist action, right? That this conflict then creates distance between my brother and myself, because for the rest of the day, we would not talk to each other. In fact, it might be even days, because he would always remember that Big Brother would hog the Game Boy. Conflict oftentimes tends to create distance between people. It's not just siblings, but it's also friends as well. Now, this distance can be geographical. It could be proximity. When you get angry, when you get frustrated in an argument, you would get a door slammed in your face 
The other person may stomp off in the opposite direction. Somebody might even get in the car and drive off to let off some steam. This distance could be geographical, it could be proximity, but this distance can also be relational. That when you enter into a conflict, the person that you have entered into conflict with would sometimes give you the silent treatment, give you the stink eye when you see them at small group. It, they give you the face that says, don't you even think about talking to me, because I am angry at this very moment. Distance can not only be geographical, but it can also be relational as well. Now, oftentimes, we also get into conflict with God, too. And we get into conflict with God when we fail to obey what he has commanded us. When we fail to do what he has commanded, it is called sin. Now, conflict not only happens when we break God's commands, but conflict also occurs when we value something more than God. If we begin to value our work, whether it be our schoolwork or our work in the office, and we spend more time there than we do in our times in prayer or times reading the word or even in small group or even at church, we begin to feel distant from God. And sometimes when we spend more time on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or whatever social media of your choice it might be, we also begin to feel distant from God as well because we spend less and less time with him. It's because we value these things more than God. And that, too, can be sin. And such sin distances us from God, that it creates a gap in our relationship. It begins to feel as though God, who once was close, is now far off because of what we have done. And this morning, we're going to look at a people who also experienced some distance from God, the nation of Israel. They had just left the land of Egypt and left slavery. They had come to Mount Sinai to receive a word from the Lord, a covenant, and they received it, and they pledged their allegiance to God. And so as Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to be able to receive the other stipulations of this covenant, Israel decides that the waiting is too long, and they decide to make for themselves their own god, a god from gold in the form of a calf, and they begin to worship it, and they break the covenant. They committed sin, and this sin distanced the nation of Israel from God. And we see this account in Exodus chapter 33. And so if you haven't turned there already, please turn there with me to Exodus chapter 33. We see that Israel's sin created distance between them and God. Uh, we see this specifically in verse 3, because this distance is manifested by God deciding to depart from Israel. So look with me at verse 3. Three. It says this, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, 
but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Uh, Do you see that? I will no go up among you, meaning I will no longer be in your midst. You can go, but I'm not going with you. Now, for those of us who hear this verse, we might think, well, that's really weird. Is it possible for God's presence to depart from his people? But we see this in the Old Testament all the time. You think of Samson. When his hair is cut, the Spirit of God departs from him. Think of King Saul. When he disobeys, the Spirit of God departs from him. When Israel disobeys, the Spirit of God departs from the temple, and Babylon destroys the temple. That's why in Psalm 51, David says, Take not your spirit from me, because after he had sinned, he was afraid that God's spirit would depart from him too. And so it's not unusual in the Old Testament to see the spirit of God departing from his people, especially when they've committed sin. But not only did God say that his spirit would not go with them, It also manifested itself in this relational distance as well. Look with me in verse 5. Verse 5 says this, For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you meaning that God, right now, is not very clear in his relationship with Israel. It's this kind of in-between before the determining the relationship type step. Because God is trying to think, what am I going to do with you people? And notice the command. The command in verse 5 says, so now take off your ornaments. This word ornaments is stated in verse 4. No one put on his ornaments. And then in verse 6. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, you may be wondering, why is God so particular about the fashion of Israel? Well, it's because if you recall in Exodus 32, what did Israel remove in order to make their golden calf? It was the gold earrings. That the first time that they removed their ornaments, out came an idol sin. And the second time that they removed their ornaments, it was to be to God a sign of repentance, that no longer would we depend upon these ornaments for spiritual protection, but we would depend only on you. But then the question is, for Israel, is that going to be enough? Will God take us back as his people, even after we've done this act of repentance? And that is the question. Now, you may be wondering, well, we're Christians. We're believers. Does the Spirit of God depart from us as well when we sin? And that is an excellent question. But if you know your New Testament, you will know that the Spirit of God is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the Spirit of God does not depart from us as believers but we can definitely be hardened to the Spirit, that we will no longer listen to the leading of the Spirit in our lives, that our hearts have become so hard 
that the Spirit's voice is one that we do not heed. So it may not be that the Spirit departs from us, but we begin to experience a spiritual distance from God when we fail to follow His Spirit. That God begins to feel very far off, especially as we are in our sin. It's like a friend that is long distance. The, lo- the less and less time that we speak with them, the more distance the relationship becomes. Now, we know that sin distances us from God, so what kind of help do we need to close the distance? What kind of aid do we need to close the gap between us and God? What is needed? What is necessary? Well, we need a mediator. We need someone to be our go-between. We need someone to be our advocate, someone to stand up for us. We need someone to be our defense. We need a mediator. Now, who is the mediator for Israel? It was Moses. Moses served as Israel's mediator. Now, we see this in verse 7. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, if you read this verse, you're going to be wondering, especially if you followed along with us in Exodus, is why is the tent of meeting, also called the tabernacle, outside? Because the tent of meeting was supposed to be inside the camp. But now, Moses had to go outside, far outside the camp, in order to meet with God. Again, it demonstrates there is now this distance between God and Israel, where Moses had to go to this place to mediate for them. And how do we know that Moses was able to mediate for Israel, to be able to advocate for them? We see that God manifests his presence as a pillar of cloud in this tent of meeting. We see this in verse 9. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. So much like in the rest of Exodus, we see the presence of God manifested as a cloud. And not only did God manifest his presence as a cloud, we also see that Moses had an intimate relationship with God. He had a face-to-face relationship with God. And we see that in verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Meaning that you had Joshua standing outside the tent of meeting, make sure that no one who was unauthorized could enter. But then when Moses entered into the tent to meet with God, it wasn't him calling up God on FaceTime saying, hey, God, can I speak to you? It was an intimate relationship where God and Moses were face-to-face, where he could see him metaphorically. It was so close. Because a face-to-face conversation is much more intimate than a text or an email or even a written letter, because you're able to not only hear the words that are spoken, but also the tone by which they're spoken, and also the way that they communicate non-verbally. Because a word, even take out the trash, can be misconstrued as a simple command or an angry frustrated, why are you not taking out the trash? 
that words can be misconstrued, but then Moses knew exactly what God was saying because the relationship was so intimate. Now, when my brother could see that he couldn't get the Game Boy from my hands, no matter how much he argued with me, because I could always out-argue him, and I could always out-fight him because I was much bigger than him, especially at that time, my brother needed some help. He needed someone to advocate for him, someone to mediate this particular conflict. And of course, my brother would turn to dad. And he would call out, Dad? And then my heart would melt, because I know judgment was coming. And then my dad would come into the room, grab the Game Boy out of my hands, listen to our case, and typically, more often than not, it was my brother's turn. My brother needed a mediator. He needed someone to go between, someone to advocate for him. And likewise, we as believers need an advocate as well. We need someone to serve as our mediator. And for us as believers, we don't rely on Moses from long ago. We rely on the greater Moses, Jesus Christ. So if you keep your thumb or your finger here in Exodus chapter 33, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to look specifically at verse 25. The author of Hebrews writes this about Jesus. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Jesus is able to save completely. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, them being believers. That we as Christians always have a mediator and intercessor at the right hand of God speaking on our behalf, because the penalty for our sin has already been paid for, and Jesus reminds the Father of that, that Jesus is always on call, he never tires, he never sleeps, his beeper is always on, that Jesus is always there making intercession for us. Now, we know we need a mediator, we need an intercessor, someone to stand between us and God. But then what qualifications does this mediator need? I mean, what references does he need to have? What does he need to know how to do? What makes him qualified to serve as our mediator or our advocate? Well, an apt, a qualified mediator needs to know God. That he needs to know God intimately. This is what qualifies the mediator to be able to stand before God on our behalf. So if we turn back to Exodus 33, we see that Moses makes a request to know God's ways. Now we see this specifically in verse 12. Let me read this for us in Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. 
Notice in verse 13, it says, Show me now your ways. Let me know what you are up to. What are you going to do next? What are your methods? What are your practices? What is your mode of operations, Lord? And God reveals in the next verse that God will indeed go with Israel to the promised land. In verse 14, and he said, he being God, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And so you would think, all right, Moses got what he needed. God is now going to go with Israel into the promised land. And you'd be thinking the chapter is done. But then there's still more verses. And I think the reason why there's more verses is because Moses is still not really sure. Okay, God, that's what you say. But how can I really be sure that you're going to carry through on your promise? What assurance can I get? And this is why in verse 18, he says this. Moses said, please show me your glory. Now, the word glory in Hebrew is called kavod. It has this idea of heaviness, of weightiness, of worth. And so Moses is saying to God, show me your worthiness. Let me know that you are worthy, that you will fulfill your command or your promises. So for those of us who like Marvel films, we know that any hero that is worthy is able to lift the mighty hammer of Thor, right? Because when he lifts the hammer, he is worthy. Now, Moses is not asking God to lift the hammer per se, but he's asking God to show a bit of his worthiness that, God, you are going to do what you say you're going to do. And Moses receives this revelation in verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, when we read verse 19, when we think, man, God is really arbitrary. It's like he's playing duck, duck, goose. I will choose you, not you, not you, not you. I'll choose you, not you, 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 not you, right? But that's not really what the verse is saying. The verse is saying, to my covenant people, to the people who I have called, you can bet your life on it that I will fulfill what I've promised you because I have chosen you. You are my people, and I will ultimately fulfill my promises to you. Now, again, how do we know that our mediator is qualified? Because our mediator, of course, is not Moses. But Jesus Christ, who serves as our mediator, also knows God the Father intimately, that he knows him so well. He knows his methods, his ways, his promises. So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, and we will read Jesus' words that he spoke. Matthew chapter 11, specifically verse 27. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. And this is one of the instances where Jesus expresses that he knows God the Father. Verse 27 says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That Jesus says right here, because I know God the Father so intimately, then you can actually find freedom from your burdens. 
that the burden that is upon you can be cast off and your burden can then be made light. And so the reason why Jesus can serve as our mediator is not only because he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, but also because he had such a close relationship with God the Father. So then what do we need to do? What is our response? Our response is this, that we need to rely on God's mediator. We need to rely on the one that God has appointed to be our advocate. We need to rely on the defense that God has set up and that defense and that advocate and that mediator is found upon God's anointed. Now, Israel had to rely on Moses to serve as their mediator, and we see this, that he serves as their representative going up the mountain to receive the covenant again. We see this specifically in Exodus chapter 34, verse 2. It says this, Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. That it was only Moses who was allowed to scale the mountain to receive the covenant again from God. No one else that Moses would serve as their representative. Now, when you read these verses, it should sound very familiar because when Moses went out the same time, it was almost the exact same instructions. Why is that? It's to remind us that the covenant that God is making here is exactly the same. It's not easier. It's not more difficult. It's going to be the same covenant that God made with Israel earlier. Now, not only does Moses serve as Israel's representative, but God also reveals more of his character to Moses as well. And we see this revelation in verse 6. It says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And God makes this wonderful revelation of himself and there is a phrase here that is so important to the Old Testament, the phrase steadfast love, which is one word in Hebrew, hesed. It's this idea of a committed love, the idea that no matter what you do, I will be so committed to you because I will fulfill my promises. And whatever I say, I will do. And not only does God reveal his steadfast love to Moses and to Israel, but God also reveals that he forgives sin, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But also that he ensures that his people, if they have sinned, no matter how old you are, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth generation, you will also receive just desserts for it as well. That God is both gracious and committed in love, but also just. And we see here that Moses then, knowing God's character, knowing God's person, he requests forgiveness for Israel's sin. 
We see this in verse 9. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. That Moses served as their intercessor, their mediator, whom Israel relied on. And so for us as Christians, for us as believers, we need to depend upon Christ as our mediator, that he is our sole advocate, our sole defense. Turn me with me really quickly again to Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. I want to read this for us uh, because I think the author of Hebrews makes a very profound point here. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, the author of Hebrews writes this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Meaning that no matter what state we may be in as a result of our sin, we need to draw close to the throne of grace where Jesus sits and that we would receive mercy and find grace and help in that time of need. But what does that look like to rely on Christ, to rely on Jesus, to depend upon him? Well, relying on Jesus, relying on Christ, requires us to let go of our habit to try to make up for our sins. I think oftentimes when we sin, either saying an angry word to someone or it be something that we lie about, Oftentimes, we try to make it up. It's as if we can pay enough penance so that our relationship with God could be restored. We begin showing up to a small group. We come to service on time. We begin to pray a little bit more. We give a little bit more offering in the basket, thinking that all these things might be able to restore our relationship with God, that it's about what I can do to make myself right with God. But then the opposite is true as well. Because there are some of us who continue to beat ourselves over the head because we have sinned. Like, God, I'm not good enough. I'm such a loser. How could I have done this? This is the second, the third, the fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh, and eighth time that I've done this. How can you ever possibly accept me? But again, it's a focus upon yourself. That we have failed to do enough to make up for our sins. And for us to depend upon Christ is to truly understand and rely upon Jesus and what he has done for us, the grace that was given to us. That when we continue to try and do things to make up for our sin, we need to pray to God and say, God, I try and do everything that I can in order to make up for what I've done. But I know that no matter what I do, it can never restore the relationship between me and you. Because only Christ has done that. Help me depend upon your grace. Help me depend upon your mercy. And for those of you who tend to beat yourself over the head, you need to also pray, God, I tend to look to myself to think that I'm worthy, that I need to look to my ability to think rightly, act rightly, believe rightly. But I know that nothing that I do can ever restore a relationship with you. Help me remember my worth that is in Christ, because when he has died on that Christ, cross, he said I was worthy. Help me. We need to rely on Christ to close the distance, to close the gap. 
So what is the result of such mediation? What happens? What is the effect? When there is a mediator for us, when we rely on him, God renews a bond with sinners through mediation. There is a relationship that is restored. And we see that God reestablishes the covenant with Israel through Moses, uh, specifically as I have read in verse 10. And I will read again. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. That the relationship with God now has been restored. Now in the following verses, God prescribes some reminders, some ways to remind Israel of this restored covenant. And it's that through certain festivals and through activities, Israel will remember this covenant that God has established with them to not adopt any of the religious practice of their neighbors. First, you had the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which often happened in April, that they would remember their exodus from Egypt, and it was at the end, also the barley harvest. And then later in June, you would have another festival, the Festival of Weeks, and that was we remember after the gathering of the wheat to remember God's goodness to Israel. And then later on, you would have the festival of the ingathering in September, where at the end of the harvest, they would again give thanks to God. Now, these festivals, these practices throughout their year would be a constant reminder to them of the relationship they had with God along with the weekly Sabbath. Then you also had different worship patterns, that what they had to offer to God would be different than their pagan neighbors, that they would offer their sacrifices without leaven, because leaven was a sign of corruption. They would be pure. And not only was it pure, they would not offer up goats boiled in mother's milk, because they would not depend on this pagan ritual for fertility, but they would depend upon God alone. Now you may be wondering, well, how does God reestablish relationship with us? Well, God reestablishes relationship with us through Christ, as Pastor Fred reminded us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that we need to go before God and confess our sins, and the relationship is restored. Now, what reminds us of the restoration? Now, we don't follow a church calendar, nor do we follow festivals, but think with me. The Festival of Unleavened Bread happens during April. That's when we celebrate Easter, when we remember that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Now, you'd be wondering, Festival of Weeks. Well, I don't know about a Festival of Weeks, but the Festival of Weeks was also called Pentecost. And if you remember in Pentecost, in the book of Acts, that's when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and they became a witness for the world. Now, we don't celebrate Pentecost at our church, but we do celebrate baptism, right? Where believers make a public proclamation of their faith to their family and friends that they are now a follower of Christ. Now, you'd be wondering, okay, well, how about the festival of ingathering? Well, the festival of ingathering was also known as the festival of tabernacles. And what was the purpose of the festival of tabernacles? They would take palm branches, right, to construct a tabernacle, to look forward to God fulfilling his promises. And when does that happen? In September. Now, we don't celebrate uh, that time in September, but there is something that comes in that season. Christmas. 
there is an Advent season where we look back to the king's coming and we look forward to the king's return. That these festivals, these are things that we continue to practice in a different way to remember the relationship we have with God. And not to mention our weekly gathering on Sundays here together as a church. And what do we offer? Now we sometimes give an offertory, but it's more than that. Because in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, does it say offer just a part of your goods? No, it says offer your whole bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That every single part of you, skills, gifts, ability, whatever you have, God says mine. And that we are to offer it to him. So we need, what do we need to do? When we feel that distance, when we feel that gap, we need to rely on God's mediator and to depend upon him to renew our bond. I shared with my small group this fearsome image I have in this mind that I'm going to one day on the day of judgment come into the courtroom of justice in the heavens. I'm going to come in and I'm going to see God seated where he's supposed to be seated as the judge. And then I see Satan, of course, in his area of prosecution with maybe a stack of papers this high or maybe even higher, of all the things that I've done wrong. And as I come in, as the plaintiff leads me to where I'm supposed to be seated on the defense side, I look and see no one's there. And that thought freaks me out. But is that thought true? Is it biblical? But for me, if I've placed my faith in Christ, and I have, then what I need to know is that even before I walk into that courtroom, Jesus is already seated there in that defense because he has already paid the price for my sins, that he will advocate for me, he will mediate for me, and I have nothing to fear. Rely on Christ as our mediator and as our advocate. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we recognize that the struggle as a believer is real, that it's difficult to live out the commands and the instructions that you have given to us because of the flesh. And oftentimes we find ourselves falling short and failing, and we feel as though there's a great distance, a great chasm that exists between you and us. But in those moments, in those seasons, in those times, may your spirit remind us of our great mediator, Jesus Christ, and that we would depend upon him as our advocate and to know that our relationship and that gap is closed forever. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.